We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. This is episode 18. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we'll be interviewing Kevin Stein, who is a remarkable traveler and knowledgeable about the world of shamanism and rock art. Welcome out there in podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. We're in the 18th episode, can you imagine? And we're, we're blessed and honored to have a gentleman by the name of Kevin Stein, who is a, a board member of the California Rock Art Foundation, he has his own business in marketing, public relations, and also is a, a skilled and uh, extremely sophisticated uh, fan and person who's done quite a bit of field work in the realm of, of rock art study and also understanding the role of shamanism in religious development and its potential relationship and interaction with the field of rock art. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. And congratulations to you and Chris for a wonderful podcast, which I look forward to every week. That's wonderful. It's really great to hear that and to get feedback from you. So, Kevin, I guess we always kick off these kinds of interaction with the million dollar question. How in the heck did you get a sense or an indication of an interest in anthropology, archaeology and the field of rock art? And all things, all things along those lines. Well, before we launch, I did want to mention that as part of our mission to support indigenous peoples, we should let everyone know that the seventh generation fund for indigenous peoples is now taking donations to help the native peoples of California and adjoining states during this crisis, not only with the pandemic, but also with the recent fires. So their their website is seven, as in the number genfund.org. You know, even the New York Times today had an article about the health crisis. And apparently in Arizona, even though Navajo folks represent only 5% of the population, they are 11% of the COVID cases. In New Mexico, it's 30% out of an 11% population. So you know, you would echo my call for people to be good ancestors and donate. Absolutely. And 
as you're communicating, it appears that Native people, Native Americans, have been hit with a one-two punch, first with COVID and now with fires. And in turn, they were not an economically well-off group before, but to be hit with those kinds of damage and kinds of inflictions on top of it uh, has them reeling and they really need our help. So I'm so glad that you reminded us of that. And let's hope others have the same compassion and interest in trying to reach out to the ancient ancestors of America. Indeed. So, Alan, let me ask then, I guess I'll answer your trick question, which is how did I get into this whole whole mess? <laughs> you know, Bill Hyder, who's a mentor, was a mentor and still is for many of us and who is a granddaddy of the field, mentioned during his interview that he had a book that a parent got him that was very influential on his interest in anthropology and paleontology which was a book on dinosaurs. And my experience is very much the same. My mother bought me two books. The first two books she ever bought me were part of a random house series called All About. And one of them was all about ancient dinosaurs and one was all about ancient cavemen. And I must have been five or six. I still have the books. And in the one on ancient cavemen, there was a rather rude, crude drawing of an artist that sort of looked more of a cartoon alley-oop type of character drawing in a cave that had some resemblance to one of the upper Paleolithic caves in the southwest of France. And, you know, that always stuck with me, though I have to say that when I studied anthropology as an undergraduate in the 70s, rock art was still a relatively new field and was treated, at least in my undergraduate courses, very perfunctorily, almost as a wicked stepchild. I remember passing by the caves of Altamira and Lascaux in a stolen minute during a lecture, and that was about it. I was fortunate enough, though, to have several professors who did open up the world of shamanism to me at the time. One was Dennis Tedlock, who was one of the foremost experts on the Maya and, among other things, translated the Popol Vuh, as well as Dr. Carl A.P. Ruck, who was a classicist, but who can open the whole nature of shamanism in the ancient world, particularly in classical Greece. And I came later to rock art when I moved to California, and I loved looking at the names, the place names on maps, and I saw a place called Painted Cave described on a map of Santa Barbara, and I said to my wife, let's go and see what this is all about, and cut to, it was revelatory, and and led me to try to find out more about the field, and then had the good fortune of connecting with Helen Michaelis and Dr. Clem Meehan at the UCLA Rock Art Archive, and I volunteered, and I never looked back. So let's have a thumbnail, you know, snapshot or a word picture, if you would, of what exactly is there at Painted Cave, and where is Painted Cave? Painted Cave is in the front country of Santa Barbara and is been an attraction that's public. It's on Painted Cave Road. It is protected with a guard gate that I gather has been there since the 20s. And it's been taken care of by the folks at the Natural History Museum and and John Johnson. And it is one of the wonderful Chumash sites that is, is amongst many of them that features astronomical designs. And it's a polychrome, and it's still in wonderful condition. And it's a a site that, again, is available for public viewing, which is wonderful. It certainly was a touchstone for my passion of the field that is ongoing. So we have a painted cave called Painted Cave. It's in Santa Barbara. It's on a road of the same name. And it's Chumash. It's guarded. It's protected. It's multicolored, polychrome. 
What can one see when one looks at the elements or images that exist there? And who are the Chumash and why would they have painted such an elaborate set of murals or elements on such a cave? Why a cave? Why, why the elements? And how does that relate to the Chumash and their cosmology? Well, the Chumash people are so named, I think Mitrumash means the shell bead people. And they were the denizens of the coastal region between Morro Bay and sort of, and Malibu, Malibu. The name Malibu comes from Humaliwu, which is a Chumash name, meaning where the surf crashes loudly. So not much has changed since. They also extended to the northern edge of the San Fernando Valley. Well, I, I guess the Chumash are what anthropologists sometimes call complex hunter-gatherers or complex foragers. They are quite a, an unusual set of hunter-gatherers, are they not? I think what makes them unusual is the circumstances of the coast, which lend themselves to a, a paradise on earth in terms of hunting, in terms of fishing, but also leisure time. So these were people who were very conversant with the, the world, the natural world, including the skies. And many of their painted sites were locations, sacred locations, where they paid homage to the cycles of the seasons, the solstices in particular. And these folks, for thousands of years, built a very complex society, and there are others who are far more expert than I in terms of the actual material culture and, and so forth. You know, I was really lucky at the time in the 70s and 80s to have wonderful mentors who included some experts on the Chumash. I mentioned Bill, Georgia Lee, Kathy Conti, and also I was really fortunate enough to have met and gotten the wise counsel of Campbell Grant, who really kicked off interest in the Chumash with his classic book, uh, Rock Paintings of the Chumash. And I think at that time, people were starting to make the connection also between shamanism and rock art. People like Ken Hedges and David Whitley were drafting off of some of the Europeans and like Paul Bonn and Jean Claude and David Lewis Williams. And I sort of, my interest in shamanism really opened up when I saw what I understood as the language of the shaman in the form of pictographs and petroglyphs and geoglyphs and these very special locations where I, I think that my interest in place names also was really brought into focus because there are a lot of places when you look at old maps that say painted wash or inscription canyon. And I started searching out those. I was very influenced by a book that I picked up at the museum after my first trip to Painted Cave by Joanne von Tilburg called Ancient Images in Stone. And I opened that book and I said, I've got to collect them all. <laughs> so I guess that, that meant that you, you must uh, visit or somehow connect with all these various places that had these gorgeous photographs of rock art in that book, correct? Exactly. I mean, and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm jesting that there are anybody's to own. I think if anything, they are marks in time that help us navigate through space and time and connect with things that are way beyond what we own. And I think that's what shamanism is all about. You know, it's, it's the ability to use certain techniques to connect to the other kingdoms of, of nature, creation, whatever you might want to call it, being plant intelligence, mineral kingdom, and obviously the world of the animal powers. So... In the final couple of minutes in this first segment, let's kind of take a little little tour, if we would, of what exactly are shamans and what was their role in indigenous culture? What is a shaman, per se? 
Well, first of all, another mentor and great teacher of mine was Michael Harner, who really was the man who is responsible, for better or for worse, of the popularization of shamanism in our time. Michael was an anthropologist who worked with tribes in South America primarily, but he was also the person who really asked the question, why are all these shamans in photos or illustrations, some of which date back to 500 years when Catholic missionaries were meeting medicine people, so-called witch doctors in places like South America, who were called devil worshipers at that time, were then starting in the 17th and 18th centuries, mostly Russian scholars visiting Siberia. Michael was the person who said, why are they all use, you know, wearing drums? It, it, it couldn't just be decorative. And in fact, he discovered that drums have been used for you know, millennia as, as the shaman's so-called horse to use techniques that the Russians call sonic driving to in, engender an altered state of consciousness. So shaman actually, and in Western anthropology, I think we say shaman, shamanism, the actual pronunciation is from the Tungus Siberian word. And I know, Alan, you've been in, in that hood and have seen it, these men of power and women of power, by the way, as well in their home court. Shaman comes from the Tungus word meaning to know or she or he who knows. Let's stop right there and, and just put a little comma on that description of shaman. And in the next segment, let's delve deeper into what it means to be a shaman and what, what the term implies and what activities and elements surround shamanism. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023 if you're in a bind this tax season lifelock can help our u.s-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back, Rock Art Podcast fans. We have Kevin Stein as our guest scholar today. And we're in the second segment of our three-segment show on Rock Art. And we're, I guess emphasizing or drilling down today on the concept of shamanism and what that might have to do with rock art. Kevin, take it away. Well, we were talking about Siberia. And in Siberia, one of the things that anthropologists and ethnographers started to notice is that many shamans, not all of them, but many of them accompanied they're drumming and rattling with the ingestion of Amanita muscaria mushrooms. And so one of the books that Michael wrote is uh, Hallucinogens and Shamanism. And what that speaks to is that shamans typically enter into what has been called a trance state. What Michael discovered is that at 205 to 220 beats per minute, you are engendering a theta state. And 
didn't need any plant accompaniments to enter into a state, again, a theta state, which is what we approach when we're falling asleep and also when we just wake up. It's been studied scientifically as a, a state of mind that is very open to, in shamanism, what one of the central tenets would be non-ordinary reality is the way that Carlos Castaneda described it in his books. But the world of the shaman is one of many worlds, parallel realities. The, and, and I think one of the things I learned when I was studying with Carl Ruck, who wrote a book with Gordon Wasson, a banker from Connecticut, who was the first white man, so to speak, to write about being initiated into mushroom cults in Mexico for Life magazine of all places. And one of the things that I realized is that to understand ancient cultures without a lens of shamanism is not to understand them at all. I think frequently, for example, in Egyptology, we compress in our own version, which is sort of handed down from Victorian anthropologists, one might call them imperialist anthropologists, a version of, let's say, Egyptian culture where one has to ask, if we have only one term for heaven and the Egyptians had 57, then who is really the culture that has a sense of the cartography of inner space. And the map that shamans have is one that for millennia has basically broken down reality into three different worlds. The middle world is the one that we navigate in consensus reality, everyday reality, television reality debate reality. The lower and upper worlds are ones that are accessible to the shaman who has a social role to community, but also I think what interested Michael Harner and his Foundation for Shamanic Studies, as well as myself, is the application of these techniques for healing purposes. The shaman is also an explorer as well. And Typically, I think what happens is a shaman will enter an altered state of consciousness that can be engendered by psychotropic plants, but also by rhythm, whether it's a rattle, drum, a mouth harp, didgeridoo, and make contact with knowledge, with animal powers. So, Kevin, I think what we're talking about is the... The means by which shamans, medicine men, individuals who are native or Indian doctors in some realm, attempt to achieve altered states of consciousness, some sort of, I like to use the term transcendent experience where they in turn leave their body. And there's a thing called, uh, I think it's called soul flight where they can either go to the heavens or go to the underworld and commune with an entirely different set of circumstances. Is, is that part of the story? Well, transcendent is a great word because it actually means above reality. And I also think you use the word soul. And I think a lot of times shamans are called soul doctors. And soul actually is what the word spirit comes from as well as breath, if we look back to the etymological nature of the word. Michael Harner always used to say that it's funny that you can talk about spirituality all day long, but as soon as you talk about spirits, people think that you're talking about Halloween, yet the world of the spirit world is very, very real to the shaman's perspective. And typically, if somebody is dispirited, they will seek to restore the power of that individual, which in shamanism, if somebody loses, is ill, they've lost power. They've become someone who may have lost their soul. 
And interestingly, a lot of shamans become practitioners because they themselves have survived some type of long illness. And uh, tribal peoples will look at them as somebody who has obviously been helped from allies who exist on the other side. So sometimes what we see, I, th I think, with this trance experience and this altered state of consciousness, shamans appear to go into a trance and that is in some cultures identified as almost experiencing a form of death and then when they come out of that trance it's as though they were resurrected or recreated into life so we see it as a sort of a death life or life and death opposition and somehow that transformation is is centrally important and i guess to all of us, since we're people that <laughs> like to uh, live and not die. Or if we did die, we'd like to live again. What do you think on that, Kevin? Well, it, it reminds me, Claude Levi-Strauss compared the psychoanalyst with the shaman and said the difference was that the psychoanalyst was retrieving a myth from the person who was ill or mm -hmm. mentally deficient in some way, whereas the shaman was performing a myth externally so that the person who was being treated could actually participate in it and go through something of uh, an initiation themselves. I mean, the shamanic, shamanic healing looks at the, re uh, the return of lost power. That's a, a technique called soul retrieval. Also, often you'll see that cures identify areas of intrusion where different elements have to be removed from somebody's physical being. And then shamanism also uses divination to define causes of illness so there's this almost this form of telekinesis or or some sort of supernatural way to divine the uh, origins of an illness. And then uh, shamans, I guess, in, in part, as I understand it, played an important role even in the hunt or in trying to lead some of these uh, animal experiences where they're trying to locate the animals and they... they do that through some sort of a, a means of, of sort of remote viewing of the landscape and then seeing where the animals are and also communicating with an animal master and asking for forgiveness and permission to hunt and kill an animal. So I think hunting magic definitely was one of the main interpretations of rock art related to shamanism in terms of asking permission of the animal spirit in order to hunt them. And it really speaks to something that the Plains Indians had codified in the form of the smoke sacrifice ceremony, which was, you know, asking permission of the different kingdoms for the hunt and to take pity on oneself. It also centered you in the in the cosmos because this the pipe was offered to the six sacred directions before it was inhaled, making you the actual center of the cosmos. But I think one of the things like rock art, shamanism has so many similarities in remote locations throughout the world in terms of geographical distribution. And that's one area where I think making the connection between rock art and shamanism, now it seems like common sense whereas before it was really philosophy and, and may have been even controversial as a point of view. And, you know, maybe that's because our idea of magic probably comes out of shamanism through places in, in Europe where it, it has survived, like Hungary and Lapland and places like that, where there's still a memory of, of people with drums. One of the things that the foundation for shamanic studies do, does is restore traditions to cultures where the drum has either been lost or taken away. Lapland's a good uh, 
example where the Sami people were those who Michael worked with to restore that tradition. I know at Esalen one year, a Paiute medicine man in his 40s asked Michael how they could do the ghost dance again. So there, there were all sorts of confluences. Speaking of time, I think one of the things that rock art and shamanism have in common is that they take you out of ordinary reality and time and put you into a continuum where uh, the, the mystery to me and the miraculous is to be in touch with people who were here before us and hopefully prom- provoke us to ask better questions of our own future. So I think what you're saying, Kevin, is that rock art has a means of sort of connecting us both in time and space across centuries and millennia. And also it serves as sort of a window or a freeze frame to the cosmological realm. Here's a, you know, it's a picture of someone's mind and their experience and also the their cultural values. And so what we can perceive is both similarities and differences in the way in which these people who lived hundreds and literally thousands of years ago viewed the world and they are preserved on stone as remarkable sort of, you know, chapters, incidents in time. And they give us an amazing, almost instantaneous connection to another time in another place. And, and how does that, how does that work, Kevin? Well, as that great anthropologist Yoda once said, some of the questions are bigger (laughs) than the answers. (laughs) I love it. I love it. You know, rock art and shamanism have run parallel paths. If we even look at the record in the Upper Paleolithic, where caves like Trois-Frères and uh, Lascaux have images of humans becoming animals and vice versa. And... I think that in, if we look at traditions where painting is still done, whether it's the Navajo with Dine people who practice sand painting or in South Africa with the San or the Aboriginal peoples of Australia, we can see that the people who paint are also those who practice uh, shamanic techniques and have a shamanic worldview. Well, let's, let's stop it there. And I think during our final segment, what I'll ask you, Kevin, is to uh, maybe give us an, a bit of an experience on the drum and on the rattle, and then also talk about maybe a, a particular extraordinary experience that you had with a, a rock art site or meeting some of these ritual practitioners and what that felt like, what you saw, what you experienced, and how that changed your perception in in the realm of uh, understanding the ordinary and the world of the supernatural so see you on the on the other side everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it Every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast. We have uh, Kevin Stein with us today who's sharing with us some of his uh, insights and wisdom regarding shamanism and rock art. And the experience of transcendence and embracing the world of the cosmos and the supernatural. 
So Kevin, where does this uh, bring us in terms of understanding shamanism in this final segment where we're talking about opening our minds and understanding the role of shamanism in rock art? How does that connect these specialists who are the doctors, the uh, psychologists and psychiatrists of the indigenous and those that are embracing these alternate realities? How does that get us to rock art? You mentioned in the last segment as you were closing experience, and that's really what shamanism is all about and the contribution of people like Michael Harner. And I would say people even like uh, Carlos Castaneda, who I think his, his master's thesis, which was his first book, and some of the subsequent ones are very accurate depictions of what happens in non-ordinary reality, which he is a phrase he coined again. So what I'd like to do is give you a sample of what some of these sonic driving techniques are about. I don't expect in 20 seconds that anybody here is going to be transformed into the way Cassinet would describe a man flies as a bird. But this is a sampling of a single-headed drum. This drum is Siberian style, which also was imported to the plains of North America. Because it's single-sided, it has a particular type of resonance. And when you hear two of these done, it can create a third ghost drum or harmonic that can really be transporting. This drum, which you can't see, has ribbons in the Siberian style of three different colors that represent the lower, middle, and upper worlds as a tribute to the shaman's roadmap. And why don't I try to give you a little taste of what 205 to 220 beats per minute sounds like. So here we go. to me that when I listen to that, it sort of hits my solar plexus as much as my eardrums and seems to seems to rivet me into that sound. I'm like kind of becoming in alignment or unified with that stream of, call it music or sound. Is that part of what happens? Well, that was uh, very effective then dose. <laughs> Yeah, I think you can really sense that there's a difference between this and the the double-headed drums that are traditionally used for ceremonial dancing and so forth. This has a distinctly medicinal purpose, and amazing things can happen. But again, I think there may be a reason why mothers give babies a rattle in the crib, you know, because there's a certain rhythm that attunes us to even the heartbeat of uh, the planet, which is vibrating at a certain rate. So I have a couple of rattles here to test out on you. This first one is a peyote rattle from the Huichol people. Uh, you'll hear all of them have a different type of frequency, and this is used to awaken the uh, peyote buttons. This is a, a rattle from the Shingu region of the Amazon, and it has quartz crystals in it, which is something that a lot of California tribes actually did with their rattles. Quartz has some unique effects and is prized among many native peoples the world over as having medicinal and magical properties. So this is an Amazonian sound. And I have a couple of others. I don't know if you can detect the subtle differences. This is a Comanche turtle rattle. 
the power of the turtle is invested in the fact that the shell of the turtle is the container for the actual pebbles that are inside it. And uh, the other tool of the trade that I have handy are click sticks from Australia that are also used uh, for sonic driving techniques, this train track that the shaman follow. So that's sort of a medley of some of the shaman's toolkit, which which certainly has awakened my dog. <laughs> of course, of course. Right? Go, what are you What are you doing? Yeah, what are wow. you doing? That that last one was was very very interesting, very very interesting. How so, Alan? I don't know. It had a, had a whole different sort of you know effect on me. I I I heard it. I heard it in my ears rather than in my solar plexus. Of course, the uh, the quartz crystals are interesting because, as uh, David Whitley had had taught us, quartz, of course, has what they call a triboluminescent aspects, which is an enormous word for um, properties that have what they call piezoelectricity, where they they spark. And they produce internal fire when they are pounded against one another. In fact, the California Indians had what they called lightning stones. And lightning stones were these white quartz. I guess they also called them snowballs. <laughs> they were they were a shaman's means of uh, creating a uh, supernatural quality and enlightening the fire within the stone and uh, using them. I presume for uh, healing and other sorts of efforts that would uh, capture the eye and the imagination and the soul of the participants of a shamanic ritual. Well, I, I think it's one of the things that, at least in the tribal eye or shamanic worldview, proves that the mineral kingdom is alive, albeit vibrating at a much slower, slower rate. If you uh, believe that rock art is not the best description of our trade, which has been off debated and criticized. I look at it as, you know, if rocks are alive and are a membrane between worlds, and if you take art back to its uh, origin in the English language, it actually is the verb to be, as in Shakespeare, you know, where art thou, Romeo, then you know, rocks can speak to a certain type of being potential. And uh, Charlie Tom, a Karak um, medicine singer, beautiful singer, uh, showed me how to operate the the, uh, crystal system. And it's quite spectacular. And, you know, I think it, it's transformative when crystals are rubbed together and smoke is produced, particularly in a, a, a healing situation where people may have doubts about the efficacy of the, the, the shamanic techniques. I had no idea. I hadn't heard that, the, that rubbing crystals together produces a bit of smoke. That's a, that's a new one on me. Wow. Well, we'll do that. We'll do that during the, the next show. Yeah, the next show we'll we'll start putting that together. <laughs> so, here we are at an interesting juncture in the uh, third segment of our show. We've talked about what shamans are, what they do, what they believe, and so and uh, some of the technology or the means of connecting with an altered state of consciousness and producing some sort of a non-ordinary reality. Now, again, the million-dollar question, how does that relate to the images that we see on rock art? Sometimes we, we do see representational images, but I think we would all agree that most often, or a huge segment of these elements or images, appear to be abstract you know, patterns or abstract images or elements that 
almost defy description. What do you think, Kevin? Well, I think that Ken Hedges wrote about phosphine action, I think, in the 70s. I think the effect of entoptics is probably goes back to Leroy-Gurhan, even. And what are phosphines or what are entoptics? It's an electrical stimulation of the optic nerve. If you press down on your closed eyelids, you'll see them. Okay. So they produce geometric shapes, which we know are often found in, in rock art. I think that there are certain types of hallucinogenic plants like Datura and others that stimulate that type of action. And some of the sites that I visited, there's one in Malibu Creek that just looks like a case study of phosphine action. It's abstract geometrics. And if you close your eyes at the site and press on that, you can see almost the same thing captured in your underneath your own eyelids. So these are these are sort of multicolored, abstract elements, images, designs that embellish these caves and rocks. Sometimes they're rock drawings. And I guess visually, some are even more elaborate and they're paintings and they're, you know, very elaborate in the sense that they're extremely colorful. And when you uh, immerse yourself, you feel like you're going into another world. I think that's one of the things that I've recognized about rock art, that it's really the journey to beg a phrase from shamanism because shamans go on journeys to contact personal sources of power, whether it's through the allies or ancestors or other types of teachers. And I think rocks have a certain sense of being in that they define a location. So one of the things that's wonderful about California is that the names are very much present. You know, I loved moving to Los Angeles and trying to figure out what Tuhunga meant. <laughs> and of course, I, I eventually combed through Harrington and, and some other ethnographies and discovered that it really made common sense that the place of the owl was called Tuhunga. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the things that sometimes a shamanic perspective brings to rock art sites is that they are places of power. And I've learned the hard way. Sometimes after a death march, you, you find one single element. And I used to throw my ha hands up in the air, and now I recognize that it's actually about the place and why it was chosen for making marks in time that people in hundreds or thousands of years later would try to make sense of. And interpretation, I think, is in rock art should follow many of the same corollaries as in shamanism. We don't really interpret people's experiences when they take a shamanic journey. It's very personal. There are certain, you know, typical experiences. But beyond that, I think I remember taking a Hopi friend of mine to a site up in the Santa Monica Mountains. And he, some folks on the trip asked him what he thought the pictographs meant. And he said, well, to us, these are clan symbols, but I would never presume to say what it was to the people. And I think that's a really fine way of looking at how rock art can be personalized to your own tribe, as it were, Right. So they're, so they're, they're idios, idiosyncratic, as we say, a personal testament. I, I sometimes call, call rock art to personal immortality. It's a, a place, a, a palace, a memory palace. But I know that uh, you wanted to sign out with a bit of a, a poem. So this might be the right benchmark for that, Kevin. Well, you made uh, reference to a site that was meaningful to me in a shamanic context. And I read a poem by Robinson Jeffers about a site in Tassajara, which eventually I found. And it's a site that's filled with handprints, including at the very top handprints that can only be children's handprints. And I think his poem really hits the mark as far as 
the power of these places to connect us to things beyond ourselves and our time. Inside a cave in a narrow canyon near Tassajara, the vault of rock is painted with hands, a multitude of hands in the twilight, a cloud of men's palms, no more, no other picture. There's no one to say whether the brown shy quiet people who are dead intended religion or magic or made their tracings in the idleness of art. But over the division of years, these careful signs, manual, are now like a sealed message saying, look, we also were human. We had hands, not paws. All hail, you people with the cleverer hands, our supplanters in the beautiful country. Enjoy her a season, her beauty, and come down and be supplanted for you are also human. Fantastic. What a great way to close. Well, Kevin, it's been a wonder. It's been an actual remarkable journey that you've given us and uh, quite a blessing to have you on the uh, Rock Art Podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pro.